Jesus. In recent years, um, it seems that our political landscape has continually grown increasingly divided. That we have uh, continually, we we, we tend to uh, 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 attack either side. If you don't agree with us, then you must be our enemy. In fact, as elections come, it often seems that one candidate is put up as the savior and that the other candidate would lead our country to utter ruin and destruction. And that might be true, but it also may not. It may just be rhetoric. It may just be things that we say to, to uh, stir up our side, to, to, to encourage those who agree with us to participate in the electoral process. But what we find, what we found it here in recent days, is it has even greater implications for the church. As a culture, uh, it, it seems that we've almost taken politics and faith and made them synonymous. That, 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 that to, to be a, a believer, it must mean you must equate with one party or another. In fact, as people have walked away from faith, they've replaced faith with politics. They've replaced a, a, a faith tradition. They've replaced a, a faith uh, background. They've replaced uh, certain uh, faith beliefs with political tenets. And so we've co-opted one for the other. And it's interesting because the more you read the Gospels, the, uh, the, the more we find that Jesus was, was totally not like that. But yet we seem to still have this drive for this certain power that as a culture, we have this drive to be the person on top, the person calling the shots. We want our side to be in rule. We want our side to be in power. And, and while that is probably, uh, you know, makes it more comforting for us, it, having one side rule completely probably is not always what's best. Maybe you've heard the phrase that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so there's great wisdom that our founding fathers put in place. That there's checks and balances. That there are those who, who see different perspectives. And there's certain things, certain steps we have to go through to, to create laws and to create balance in our country. And while it seems that uh, there, there are pieces at play that seem to swing the pendulum one way or the other, uh, we, we still seek most of all to control our own future and to control our own destiny. We want to be the ones calling the shots. And this has kind of been the way since childhood, right? I mean, mom and dad say, go and do this. And what do we do? We always want to push back and rebel, right? It's like, yeah, go clean your room. Well, what the la- if they mentioned clean your room, that becomes the last thing you want to do, right? Well, all of a sudden, I'd rather do, I've wanted to do this all day long. You've been sitting there doing nothing. Well, you had all this other time to do this thing. Now it's time to go clean your room. I don't want to clean my room. Never happens at our house. They just go and clean it. No. Uh, right? No. We, 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 and, and then as we grow up and as we enter school, all of a sudden we begin to push back against teachers. Hey, we need to be quiet and, and take their test. It's time to do this. I don't want to do this. And we push back against teachers. We push back against authorities. And, and wherever we have these moments, we tend to want to be the person in control. We want to exert power. We want to be the person in authority. And what we think, often think is that we just, we just want to be the one to, to make the rules because then at least we can feel free. Because the rules these other people have in place are just way too oppressive for us. Like I said, uh, 
saying absolute power corrupts absolutely, but nowhere in Jesus' teaching does he tell us, does he teach us, does he command us to attain power. In fact, Jesus flips the whole world on its head. It's one reason why he teaches in parables. As he teaches in parables, what he's doing is he's taking the, the uh, current cultural mantra, the current kind of cultural thought, and just flipping it upside down. And if he would have just come out and said it, he would have been labeled a rebel and ran off. But he packages these things in parables. And as we've read these all along the way, it, you know, it's like Jesus talks about uh, if we had faith the size of a mustard seed, just something small, it can grow into something quite large. That these small beginnings, can, God can turn into something that's quite big and powerful. And in our mind, we're going, but that's small. Small is weak and small is insignificant. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It starts with something small and God makes it. Jesus teaches in parables to, to change our perspective, to change our view, to change our mind. To, 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 as we seek to attain power, Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's not the way to the top. Because everyone thought that when the Messiah came, that he was going to run Rome off, that there was going to be this great power shift. Because like us, they were held captive to the powers, to the, to, to the empire of the world. And sometimes we find ourselves in the same place we find ourselves captive to the powers that be. Whoever's in office, whoever the president is, whatever the current political climate is, we become captive. But the way of Jesus was, was not a triumphal march to the top, but an ever-descending trek toward humility. It wasn't a climb to, to the top of the pyramid to put ourselves in power, to put ourselves in control. It was always an ever-descending trek into a life of service. Not about becoming more, about becoming less. And this was a lesson that took the disciples a long time to learn. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to look at verses 20 to 28, that Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem as we prepare ourselves for, uh, for uh, Easter, for, the resurre- for celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. We are finding ourselves walking ever closer in the gospel of Matthew as well. Passover is almost near Jesus, nearing Jerusalem, and and he knows what lies ahead. And the disciples know the calendar. The disciples know Passover is ahead, and they're thinking, maybe this is the year. Maybe this is the year that finally Jesus runs the Romans out, and he sets up the nation of Israel again. Maybe this is the time. And so they begin to jostle for seats. They begin to jostle for position. They begin to, to, to begin to uh, determine how things are going to work out once Jesus is king. What seats will everyone sit in? And Jesus begins once again to change their perspective on what is to come and what it means about position of heaven. This is what Matthew writes for us. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, that she comes to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking. Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. 
And Jesus called them all together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's, there tends to be this one consistent conversation that the disciples always seem to be having. Wherever they're going, whenever they're talking, whenever it's just kind of them talking and muttering amongst themselves, the, the question that always comes up is, who is the greatest? Who's the top dog? Okay, we know it's Jesus, but after Jesus, what's the pecking order, right? Yeah. Who, who is the greatest among us? Who is going to sit at his right? Who's going to sit at his left? How are things going to look in Jesus' kingdom? And, and while they may not be having that kind of conversation right now, we see the pieces at play, don't we? And so as they're making their way towards Jerusalem, they know the clock is ticking. They know Passover's coming. They know that there's this great messianic kind of expectation that Jesus is going to come in and, and, and uh, reclaim Israel for Israel. And, and, and Jesus' disciples kind of know that there's, there is a certain kind of pecking order already. That there's already kind of an inner three, an inner circle of Peter, James, and John. But, but the rest of the group it, you know, seems to be kind of on level footing from there. And so James and John, in trying to get the upper hand, they go to their mom, and, and mom goes to Jesus, and she makes this request. She says, hey, Jesus, uh, when you come into your kingdom, uh, wouldn't it be great? I mean, because my sons are pretty like, if I must say so myself. Yeah, can one of them sit at your right and the other one sit at your left when you come into your kingdom? They're, they're kind of like, you know, you're king. You're, you're the top dog, right? You're the number one. But, but besides, they're like your vice top dog people. They're, they're, they're right there. I mean, they already had kind of the majority stake in the inner three, right? We have James and John and Peter. There's the two sons of Zebedee and Peter. They, they, they were just kind of trying to, to solidify that position. And then mom comes to them, and, and, and how can you say no to a mom, right? Yeah, it, it's, 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 it's Little League season, and we're about to have our first practices, and, and there's going to be mom, hey, shouldn't my boy play, and, and shouldn't my child do this, and shouldn't my child, and, 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 and you, know, you, you in your nicest way possible say, have, have you seen them catch? It might, be a, it might be a danger for me to put them in that position. My desire at the end of every game and practice is to return them to you in one piece. I've already bloodied one child's nose at a practice. I do not desire to do that ever again. And so they decide, man, why not? Let's make this quick. Let's swing for the fences. Let's, let's go big or go home. And so mom says, hey, let the, hey can, you sit, can they sit at your side? I mean, Jesus is, still, Jesus is already pretty big time. I mean, he, he's got the religious uh, leaders kind of in a stir. And every time he comes to Jerusalem, they kind of wonder what's going to go on. And so Jesus is, is you know, pretty big. And, and if he truly is the Messiah, at some point they're thinking, he's going to run Rome out and, and we're going to have cabinet positions, right? And, and they're like, I wouldn't mind being Secretary of State. And they're like, well, I wouldn't mind being this. And they want to be in these kind of important positions. And so they come to Jesus and they have mom make this request. Can they be at your right or left? And Jesus looks at them. <laughs> you can almost, sometimes when you read scripture, you can almost hear Jesus chuckle, right? And Jesus probably just chuckles at them and goes, boys, do you know what you're asking? 
Do you, do you even begin to fathom the question that you're asking? He goes, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they're like, Jesus, we trust you. We'll drink after you, right? You know, COVID or not, I mean, coronavirus or not, man, I will, I'll, I'll drink from the same cup. That's not what they're talking about. Whenever you see the word cup in scripture, uh, unless it's talking about an actual physical cup, that word cup always points to God's wrath. So when you read the prophets, when you read Revelation, and there is a, you see that they're drinking from God's cup, that's not God offering them a refreshment. That's not saying, man, you must be thirsty. Here's some sweet tea. It is the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus said, can you, can you drink from the same cup of God's wrath that I'm about to drink from? Can you do that? Are you prepared for that moment? I mean, when Jesus goes to Gethsemane and he prays, uh, Father, let this cup pass from me. He's not saying, I don't want to go to the cross. We always equate that to the cross. God, if there's any other way, can I avoid the cross? No, <clears throat> he knew the cross was coming. The cross wasn't what scared Jesus. What he feared was the separation. When Jesus calls out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is what Jesus is, is, is hoping would pass. He doesn't want that moment. He's never known separation from God. But in that moment, when the sins of all humanity for all time are placed upon him, God turns his back on his son and he feels that separation. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the wrath that Jesus was hoping to avoid. And Jesus goes, boys, do, do you understand? Do you understand the cup I'm about to drink? Can you, can you drink from that same cup? And James and John are probably far younger than we imagine. We, we almost always imagine them being, being grown men. But they're probably, you know, you know in their early, maybe even early mid-20s. These are young guys. And so they got a little bit of that Superman complex. They got a little bit, you know, maybe a little bit full of themselves, a little bit arrogant. What can really hurt me? What can really harm me? What can come my way that I can't handle? Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they say, sure can, right? Oh, yeah, if you can drink it, we're drinking right there next to you. We are there with you. Right? I mean, they're just... Jesus, we're, we're going, we're down. Whatever happens, we're walking with you. A little bit of bravado, a little bit of, you know, hey, we can do this. If you notice in all the conversations of Jesus, in all the teachings of Jesus, he never promises position. He never promises we'll be on top. He never promises that things are always going to go well. He never promises position, but he does promise persecution. He does promise persecution. And so when we, in our position, walk into moments that aren't always comfortable, that seem like the world is against us, guess what? Jesus promised that. He didn't promise James and John that everything's going to go well. He didn't promise them that, that they're going to be at his right and they're going to be at his left. They said, no, 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 no. He's like, boys, you need to understand, you will, you, you will drink from the cup that I will drink. I can't promise position, but I can promise persecution. That troubles, that difficulties will come your way. And if we look at church history, we find that James is the first of the apostles, the first of these disciples who will be martyred. 
And we don't get very, he doesn't last very far into the book of Acts. So James only has a few more years of life to walk with Jesus on the earth. And then there's John. And while John doesn't die a martyr's death, he does die as an old man, exiled on a barren island, the Isle of Patmos, in the middle of the Mediterranean. Away from his people, away from his church, but not away from his God. Because the reason why we have the book of Revelation is because Jesus comes to him and visits him there and shows him what the future is going to be like in pictures that he cannot begin. He's like, this is, this is like what happens. That's why when we read it, we, we, we get so confused because we think it's literal. And, and, James is, uh, and John's like, I can't tell you literally what happened because I can't begin to fathom it. But this is, this is, like what, this is what it's like. It's uh, something like this. It's something like this. But in the end, he's like, in the end, we win. Those who walk with the lamb win. And Jesus says, you will drink from my cup. You will drink from the same cup of God's wrath that I do. They would endure hardships for Jesus, even though Jesus can't promise them position. He says, persecution will come your way. So Jesus is having this conversation off to the side. You got uh, James and John and their mom and Jesus. And off to the side over here, you have the other 10. And the 10 see this going on and they get indignant. They are mad. Not because of what Jesus said, but because those two beat him to the punch. Well, well maybe if we asked Jesus, maybe he would have given us the position. They thought of it first. And so they're mad at James and John. Because they beat them to the punch. They asked first. So they are mad. They tried to scheme their way to the top because it shows that no one in the group understands the true mission of Jesus. They still think it's about politics. They still think it's about restoring the kingdom to Israel. They, but in a, in a short time, they will be shown a clear picture that the mission of Jesus was never political. I can imagine. There's Jesus, maybe shaking his head, going, when will they get it, Father? When will they finally understand? When will they finally grasp that's not about politics, not about power, it's not about position. That's not why I came. And so Jesus gathers them together again. He circles them around and, and like one more time he says, yeah, yes, do, do, do you know how the rules of the Gentiles and the, the, the other authorities, they lord it over them. They exercise their authority over the people. They have them, Rome has you guys under their thumb. And they just love pushing it down on you, don't they? You see how they do that over and over again? And they're probably nodding their head yes. Like us saying, you know how it seems that the Republicans have to disagree with the Democrats and the Democrats have to disagree with the Republicans, that if you're a Red Sox fan, you have to hit the Yankees. If you're a Yankees fan, you have to hate the Red Sox. If you're a Ravens fan, you have to hate the Steelers and wish them ill. And the Steelers uh, hope Lamar Jackson uh, gets a stomachache for the entire game when they play them next year. Right? And so that, 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 and that's kind of how our world is. If you are not for us, for us, you're against us. And you are my rival. You're my enemy. And so we must disagree and dislike you at all times. They're probably not in their head. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because that's just kind of the re- that seems just to be the reality of our world. That's how the game is played. Even if we're not in the room where it happens, we understand that's just how things kind of go. You know the 
the, the, the rules of the Gentiles, they lorded over them. The, their high officials, they exercise, they, they flex their authority upon them. And then Jesus utters four words that flip the script, change everything. And he says, not so with you. Not so with you. See, with Jesus, it's not about exercising power. It's not about achieving position. He says, not so with you. That might be how they play the game. That might be how the game is played over there. That might be their rules, but not so with you. It's got to be different among you. If we play the game, the same game they play, we will lose. If we always, if we fall in line with their concept of power and their concept of position, we will lose. Not so with you. That's not how we do things in my kingdom. He says, instead, if you want to be great, you must be the servant. If you want to be first, you must be the slave. See, Jesus constantly flipping the script. They were thinking, hey, you think that by advancing it has something to do with moving up, getting to the top of the pyramid? Jesus flips it and says, no, no, no. It's not about ascending. It's about descending. It's not about ascending into greatness. It's about descending into humility. Because Jesus doesn't promise us position. He doesn't promise us power. He promises that if we want to be great, we must serve those around us. See, if there's anyone, anywhere, who could have deserved, demanded power, could have demanded position, could have demanded praise, it was Jesus. But Jesus constantly shows us that the way to lead is by serving. And the way to get to the top is by getting to the bottom. The powers of the world those around us constantly seem to be grabbing to exert more power, to get greater position. And Jesus shows us the greater position one has, the greater responsibility that person has to serve. It's not about having others serve them, but putting yourself in a position to serve those who are around you. So we're used to hearing, if you want to be great, if you want to succeed, you have to climb the ladder. You have to bet on yourself. You have to grow yourself. You have to focus on you. The message from culture is, is you yourself matter more than anything to yourself. And while you do matter, our personal success ought not to be the main priority of our days. The positions we hold are not meant for our benefit alone, but to benefit those who are around us. It's not about what's in it for me, but how can I use my position to serve those around me? See, it would have been easy for Jesus to come and make a name for himself. I mean, have you seen the miracles they did? He fed 5,000 people. And after the feeding of the 5,000, they wanted to march Jesus into Jerusalem and make him king. Guess what? It would have worked. They would have said, yeah. I mean, he had 5,000 men plus women plus children, and that would have that would have just like turned into this like huge avalanche of people coming into Jerusalem. This is what he did. He fed us from nothing. They'd be like, oh, he's the man. And they would have rose up and they would have ran Rome out. Jesus wouldn't make a name for himself. He could have done it. I mean, he walked on water. Once again, make a name for himself. Just do that in front of a beach, in front of people. And they would go, look, he walked on water. Look, he caused the blind to see. He helped the lame to walk. He restored the hearing of the deaf. 
He did all these miracles. If he wanted to make a name for himself and put himself in a position of power, he could have easily done that. But Jesus didn't come to make a name for himself. He came to serve. So he could have easily come in and taken over the scene if that was his mission. But Jesus punctuates this teaching. If you thought that was strong enough, he goes one step further. He goes, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. I didn't come to, to be served. If I wanted to, I could have. I could have just shown up. I could have done my deal, and everyone would have bound to me and taken care of all my needs. But I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. In a few nights, are going to be around the table observing the Passover. Once again, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. Hey, there's Jesus, and then how do we fall from there? They're arguing once again. They just, it takes so long for this teaching to get into them. And, and while they're there, they're bickering about who's the greatest. The greatest among them stands up, leaves the table, takes off his outer clothes, wraps himself in a towel, brings along a basin of water, and washes, his, washes their the job of the lowest slave was performed by the greatest in the room. And Jesus says, the son of man, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. He uses his favorite title of himself, the messianic title from the prophet David. It, it, it's, it's just shy of being directly saying, I'm the Messiah. It's just shy of that. And he says, I'm Jesus says, I'm the one. Hey, it's me. The Son of Man, the Messiah, did not come to be served, but to serve. And then he tells them that their calling is to do the same. He washes their feet. He says, comes back to the table. He's got his clothes back on. And he begin, they begin the meal. And in there he says, if I, your Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you should do to others what I have done to you. James and John, hey, we, we want to sit your right and your left. Can you drink from the same cup? Oh, yeah, yeah, we can. He's like, it's not about position. It's not about power. It's not about authority. It's about putting yourself in a position to serve. And Jesus used his position of greatness that he descended himself into to give his life as a ransom. For many. That word ransom, it's an important word. It's a pretty significant word. It's a word that describes the, the, the is used to describe the price that was paid to free a slave. The price that is paid to, to free a slave. As you read through the New Testament, we often find that this, the description of our spiritual state before we come to Jesus, as slaves to sin. That we are slaves to sin. We are slaves to the, to the worldly empire, to, to the kingdom of Satan. We are slaves to our sinful self, to our sinful nature. We are slaves to that. But Jesus came. He died on the cross to pay the price for our sin, to free us from a life of sin, and to help us to live free for him. He didn't come to be served but to serve and to ultimately give his life to pay the price to free us from our sin so we can live 
and freedom for him. Jesus takes his time to, to give us a simple look into the gospel. That we were sla- slaves to sin, doomed to eternity and hell until he paid the price for us. He gave us his life as ransom. And that freedom, that freedom means we no longer have to seek position. We no longer have to seek power. But that we walk in freedom with him. We walk in step with him. We don't save ourselves we can't earn our way to the top. We can't save ourselves by rising up from, uh, from the ashes. We only achieve any sort of position, any sort of state with God because Jesus used his power on our behalf. He came to serve us, to redeem us, to, to pay the price that was necessary for us to walk in freedom. And so many of us, even those of us who are believers, we still tend to fight for position. We still tend to exert our authority, exert control. We tend to still fight for position. We think it's a march to the top of the pyramid. But if Jesus were here with us today, he would look at us and say, not so with you. That's not how we do things in this kingdom. That's not how we do things in my house. That's not how we do things in the kingdom where I am king. Not about position. It's not about power. It's not an ever ascending trek to the top of the pyramid, but an ever descending trek into servanthood, into a life of humility, into giving of ourselves so that others might be lifted up. Maybe our serving, maybe our getting low will help lift someone up so they can see Jesus. Maybe they're so low, maybe they're at a position where their eyes can't yet see Jesus, but our serving them, our showing, us, showing them God's love, lifts them up so they can see hope. Maybe they feel trapped in their place. Maybe they feel trapped in their world, and they need to be lifted up so they can see freedom. But if we're too worried about position, if we're too worried about power, we will never see those who need to be lifted up. You need to be set free from their worldly chains so that God can set them free from their spiritual chains. Maybe they're those who are so low and beaten down. They can't see any way out. See, the life of a Christian is not a triumphal march to the top, but a descending trek into humility. We lay our life down so that Jesus can be lifted up. We lay our life, life down so we can lift others up to see Jesus is not about becoming more, always about becoming less, that we can make more of him. Maybe today, maybe today you need to experience the freedom Jesus offers. Maybe today you need to accept his offer of grace and his offer of salvation. Jesus came to lay his life down to be a ransom for many. If that's the decision you need to make today, we want to celebrate with you. You go to the connection page there. It's cchmd.com slash connect. Fill out the connection card. If you would, go down the aisle there and let us know that today you want to become a Christian, that today you want to experience the freedom that can only be found in Jesus. If, if, if it's, uh, th- th- even if that's a little bit too difficult, you can just t- text the word life to 
0897. We'll follow up with, with you guys and, and, and help you walk into this new life of freedom. This new expression of life in Jesus. And today we want to give you a moment to kind of begin to process this message, to process this hope. And if you need to respond to this today, I'm going to be around afterwards. Just come up and see me. If you are at home and, and, and you need to express it and process it, let, let, me, let us know via the text. Let us know via the, the, the connection card. We're going to give you a moment just to kind of sit and process what a life of freedom, what a life of service, what a life of humility looks like. The band, I'm going to pray here in a second. The band's going to come. We're going to sing a song. A song about the freedom that we have. Because of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the life we have because of him. The hope we have because of his sacrifice on our behalf. He laid down his life that we might be set free. Father, help us to walk in that freedom. To live in that freedom. That you would give us new hope a new life. Father, we thank you that the way forward is not up, that we can serve those around us and show them your love in a real, tangible, powerful way. Father, help us to serve those around us. They may love and follow you. In Jesus' name I pray.